be looking at uh, Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 31 to 32. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. There we go. Pretty straightforward. Sermon's over. Um, <laughs> well, let's expand on it a little bit. So, in 1991, there was this incredible storm. They made a movie and a book about it called The Perfect Storm. Mark Wahlberg, George Clooney dies in it. Oh, spoiler. Spoiler. They all die. And um, it got that name, Perfect Storm, because a retired meteorologist named Robert Case was invited to, to talk about it. And he said, you know, this storm is the perfect storm. Like, it's incredible. It's massive, 140 mile per hour winds, 100 foot waves in the ocean. It was incredible. And he said the problem, the reason it became so big was there was three meteorological phenomena that were converging, which is very rare. So coming from the north, from Canada, that's our contribution, there was a low pressure system coming south. From the south moving up was Hurricane Grace. And then coming, sweeping across America from the west was an incredible force of wind. And they all hit at that same point off the coast of America, just south of Atlantic Canada, and it creates this incredible storm. And this got me thinking about this passage because when we talk about divorce, in this passage, when Jesus is addressing the crowds, there's three forces that are converging and creating a storm. Jesus is causing trouble here. And those three things are, there's tradition, what Moses said, which he quotes part of it. So there's this traditional understanding of marriage and divorce. But into that comes the cultural voice, the hurricane of the culture that says, but this is what divorce is. And then into both comes Jesus interpreting Moses' words and saying, here is how you should be thinking about it. And when these three things hit together, it causes a storm in us. And as a result, we have if we look at these three things, what was said, so what is he quoting? What was the traditional view of, about divorce? Then what was the, cult, the counter view that the culture was espousing, including the church, the, the, uh, the Jews? And then into that, Jesus comes with his voice and offers a different, not different perspective, but, well, different from the culture, surely. So let's look at those three things, and I think we're going to learn quite a bit about what divorce is and why it's such a big deal in the Bible and why... Although we are horribly messing up marriages everywhere, all, and many, listen, many of the people in the room have gone through divorces, so this isn't a judgment only here. It's also saying, yes, there has been issues, but there's also great mercy here. So let's look at those three things. So first, what was Moses saying? And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has, um, he does this formula where he continually says, you've heard it said, but I say. And when he says, you've heard it said, what Moses is saying, he's quoting Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 to 4 very popular. Everybody would have at least understood it. So let me read that for you so we know what he's talking about. When a man takes a wife and, he, and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife, after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin upon 
the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Now that sounds harsh, especially in our modern culture, because again, we've got the hurricane of the culture speaking. And we're going to see throughout this, this, this sermon that a lot of the challenges we have with the line that the Bible draws about divorce is because you and I have drunk the cultural Kool-Aid far more than we dare admit. And as a result, we find him offensive. We find some of these rules almost problematic. But we're going to talk about why they're not and how we can see them rightly. But in the culture, the reason this sort of a law comes, why does God even give people these laws? Well, it's, exa- it's almost exactly the same as the law he gives that is much derided. I think Gandhi even took exception with it. But um, what does Gandhi know? With all due respect, as not being a Christian, he misunderstood entirely what Scripture was saying. So when he says something like, an eye for an eye will only make the whole world blind, listen, that's very poetic. I, it is, and I understand what he's trying to say. But I'm sorry, he has not understood Scripture. When that, that law comes in, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, it's called in Latin the lex talionis, this idea of retribution. I understand that we can look primitive, but do you know why it comes? It comes into Israel because God realizes Israel is unable to administer justice. They're not able to do it rightly because they're offering, they're demanding an eye for a hair, an eye for a speck, a tooth for a small insult. And because they're allowing revenge and vengeance to dominate justice, there's no justice being made. So God comes and says, you must make the penalty proportionate to the crime. Stop treating things unfairly. And that then becomes a protection for justice, not against it. Nowhere in scripture is he saying, yes, literally, go gouge out a guy's eye. That's not the purpose of the lex talionis. And so when he comes with divorce and he says, listen, you have to be really harsh here about the divorce lines. You have to understand he's not just being frivolous. God is coming because he has seen there's injustice in the way the Jews and the ancient peoples were dealing with their divorces. They were divorcing for frivolous reasons. You're going to see that in a minute for some of the reasons that we know why they were divorcing. And God comes and says, if I allow you to keep treating marriage the way you're treating it and divorce the way you're treating it, you're literally causing half of the population to be beggared. So I can't. So here's how you're to do it. If you must get divorced, then this is how you're supposed to handle it, to maximize it, to protect specifically the woman. Believe it or not, this law that sounds so archaic, so, I mean, feminists hate it, is actually there to protect women. And let me show you how that happens, because it's not as, as odd as it may seem. The first thing this law does in Deuteronomy is it sets out the grounds for divorce. It says very clearly, you can't just divorce for anything you want. And he specifically says indecency, which is literally sexual indecency. Notice he doesn't talk about adultery here, because adultery's penalty wasn't divorce, it was death. So he's speaking any sort of indecency is you have to, to be very clear, it can't just be for anything you want, because people were getting divorced for all sorts of reasons. So I think that's common today. I think it's fair to say that we have done very similar things in Canada. And women were, when, in that culture, when, when divorces occurred, the women were considered damaged goods. They were, oh boy, it's like buying a used car. I'm sorry, this was the language of the time. It's like, ah, it's pretty, they're damaged here. So God says you cannot just go divorcing people willy-nilly, because not only is it breaking a bond that God has set, which I've mentioned in previous sermons, and I'll say again, but you're leaving the woman in a very terrible situation culturally. So I have to regulate it. No more just getting divorced 
the way you want, for any reasons you want. There to protect the woman. The second thing it does, it says you have to have this certificate. And on this certificate that was given to the woman, it said they were legally divorced and free to remarry if they wanted. It said why they were divorced, and then it had two witnesses that signed it. Now, the reason for that, it sounds, oh, it sounds so archaic, the poor woman. Understand, if a woman doesn't have a certificate, she's not going to get married in that culture. So God steps into the culture and says, you guys, as you're divorcing these women, you're leaving them so that they're considered risky. If I'm a man looking for a, a wife, and a woman has been, been married once before, and she doesn't have a certificate, that's a, that's a risky investment. I don't know why. Is she going to rob me? Is she going to bring shame to me and my family? What's wrong? Like, I need to know. Cult, I'm not saying it to approve of this. This is culturally what was happening already in the ancient world, everywhere. So God steps in and says, no, you have to provide her a certificate because otherwise she's rendered to poverty or prostitution. And the certificate must say she's allowed to remarry and there's witnesses there, credible witnesses. So it can't be, oh no, I just signed that for fun. No, this is to protect the woman so she's not stuck in this loop of poverty because of, sadly, the man's decision to, to divorce. So it comes to protect in that regard. And the third way is this seemingly bizarre clause of don't remarry the woman once you've divorced her. Now, this is a question I actually get regularly, still. So people will sometimes say, hey, so if two couples, if a couple gets divorced and they find it's not for a biblical reason, right? It's, I don't know, the color of the walls in the kitchen. Um, I haven't heard of that, but let's just pick a silly thing. So they get divorced. Then they get remarried and they become Christians and realize, you know what? Our first divorce wasn't, wasn't biblical. We shouldn't have gotten divorced. Shouldn't they, Carl, then repent of being married the second time, divorce, and get back together? Shouldn't that happen? I know it sounds bad, but that, that's a common question. If they found they did wrong, listen, if I get found as a Christian, I become a Christian and I'm, uh, and I'm in the sex trade industry, the logical response is repent and get out of the industry, right? So why isn't it the same for married couples? And I, so I understand the question. I'm not laughing at it, but I do understand it. But he says very clearly, this is why. Because Yes, they, the marriage may have dissolved for the wrong reasons. Listen, I know people in this room, I know family members who become Christians and later after hearing sermons like this say, my goodness, my first marriage broke up and it was not biblical grounds. What do I do now? And the first thing is this. When you get married, specifically in a Christian context, I'm not talking the justice of the peace, then you get married a second time, the answer is not to break up that second bond you made before God but then to pour into that one, repent of the, wrong, the, bro the broken first marriage and saying, I'm sorry, we couldn't make it work. I'm sorry, we, we did it wrong. And then we focus on that marriage. And there's, church, there's people here who have been remarried. And listen, yes, we'll talk about repenting of, the, of if there's a need of the first marriage, but now that second marriage has been here, it's our job to nurture that marriage with you, to make it as God-honoring as possible. Is that easy? No, of course. Is it messy? Yeah, totally messy. But this is what he's saying. You don't break up the second marriage, that second bond to restore the old one. That's not God-honoring. We'll talk more about some of this stuff. But then there's other things, right? The first one is don't remarry. And this is a call for all of the Jews to say, think carefully. This is a bond you made before God. Before you break it up, are you sure you want this? Even the Canadian government knows you can't get divorced within a year. You know this, that the government would prefer you don't get divorced? 
that you wait a time of about a year of separation before you get divorced. Even our secular foolish government knows better than most of us. And the Bible says it as well. Reflect carefully, this law tells us. The second thing it says is, as I said, it protects the second marriage. And God, because God knows there's still shame. There was shame in the ancient world, much more so. But today even, there's still a stigma. Listen, when women get divorced and men get divorced, women don't need to rely on the men for money any longer. But like it or not, women are still the ones who are looked on worse when they're divorced than men. And, sorry, it's often the women looking at other women that way. And vice versa, I'm not condemning, this is just the way, the sad fact. And God knows that it is still an incredibly painful and traumatic thing, economically, emotionally, spiritually, physically, relationally, in every regard. And so, there is regulation. God says very clearly, here's an important last point here. The tradition, and God, the Bible is very clear, divorce is never encouraged or required. Now people are like, oh, what about abuse? What about adultery? Never required or, or demanded by God, ever. If there is abuse in a, in a marriage, I'm not suggesting you stay. Goodness, no. What I am saying is this. God's first will is that the abusive partner would repent and be reformed. And that the one who's been abused would forgive like he forgave us. Of course, in our humanity, that's not always possible. We get that. But when, make no mistake, any time there is a divorce, God weeps. God weeps. Not suggesting you stay in a marriage that is abusive. That's not what we're saying. But do you understand, the goal is, no, wouldn't, wouldn't it be better? Wouldn't it be a better witness if you were able to make it work the way God in Hosea says he stands outside the door while Israel is sleeping with other people and he watches and he waits until she is okay. He brings her home and restores her to relationship. Boy, that is incredible faithfulness that you and I do not possess. But that is yet what we're called to. So this is a traditional view of marriage. Like it or lump it, it's scriptural, okay? I, I get it. But now into this comes the cultural tide that we have. And here is a fascinating picture of history we get because we know for a fact that at the time of Jesus, there was a, de a debate raging in Israel about divorce. And like our modern debates, there was a conservative and a liberal proponent on each side. The conservative guy was a guy named Shimei. And Shimei was such a, he's a rabbi, and he said, there is absolutely never, I don't submit to never divorce. Never, never, except adultery. <laughs> he said, that's the only thing. Any other reason is not good. He was so harsh as to go well beyond, um, I think most people would even say biblically is what required. Meaning, it doesn't matter what's going on in that marriage, you don't break it up unless it's adultery. So hard conservative. On the other side, the liberal side was a guy named Hillel. And Hillel we have his, some his, his, we know what he thought. He says, no, no, divorce anytime you want. Do whatever you'd like. Just get divorced. In fact, he says, you could get divorced if your wife burns your dinner. Literally, he says that. If your wife puts on a few pounds, divorce her. You find a younger, better model, divorce. He was hyper-liberal. So we have these two views in the ancient world. And surprisingly, the culture was accepting the liberal view. Yeah, it's okay, as long as, see, here's where we're good Pharisees. As long as you give her a certificate, just fulfill the rules and give it to her. It's okay. And this was the cultural assumption. Now, whether or not they were ignoring Deuteronomy 24 or they didn't understand it, I'm, I can't say entirely. But I do know this. Our culture looks more like that than it does like the conservative view. And I'm not suggesting the conservative view is perfect by any stretch. 
So our culture, so did you know in Canada, it's actually lower than I thought, about 38% of people divorce only? I say only, it's terrible, but that's 29th in the world. Russia's at 60%. And so it's only, only again, culturally relevant, 40%-ish get divorced. Um, but even here, we know you don't have to be a Christian to know divorces are hard. Divorces are difficult, they're nasty, they're messy, they're very unpleasant. At very least, we all can agree on that. Um, there's stigma, m much stigma. I mean, if you get divorced, you have people either to you or behind your back saying things like, don't you care about the kids? Don't you care about the kids at all? Um, or you feel like a personal failure. I couldn't make it work. Um, I'm not lovable. There's this, all this stigma. It's such a, a hard, hard thing. And yet, in this way, Canada still says, but divorce is better than staying in an unhappy marriage. Get divorced. If things are, and the, the, the reasons change, but there's a lot of, some legitimate, some not so legitimate reasons for being divorced. And it's everywhere. So I would say this, in Canada, I think it's fair to say the view of divorce is this. Do it if it'll make you happier. Simple. That's kind of the, 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 the way it's said. And let's use a couple of examples. There's a, a woman named... Um, Jennifer Weiner, and she wrote a book called Fly Away Home, and she says, divorce isn't such a tragedy. A tragedy is staying in an unhappy marriage, teaching your children the wrong things about love. Nobody ever died of divorce. It's a bizarre statement, considering many divorced people commit suicide, but let's not argue that point. Taylor Jenkins Reid, another author, says, heartbreak is a loss. Divorce is a piece of paper. And this is, listen, you know these people write for the New York Times, Toronto Star? This is kind of the way we see it, that divorce is un, un, unfortunate because it has material ramifications. It hurts families, it costs money, it has emotional distress and mental illness it brings, these things. But even as a pastor, I can tell you this, most people I talk to about divorce, not most, I've actually never, I've only been doing this, what, 12 years, but only in that time, I've never heard a couple say, we're distressed that our divorce is contrary to God's will. Never. It's always, but we're happier, or we weren't happy. And listen, I understand that emotional side, but it does distress me a little bit that in the church we don't seem to, seem to be concerned that divorce has a break with God as well in there, and we'll talk about that in a minute. So that's the cultural voice, right? So the, the traditional voices, don't get married. Stick it out if you can. Make it work. If you have to divorce, there's a way, however. Culture says, stop it. Just get divorced. There's all sorts of reasons. You don't support my career, I'm out. We don't agree on how many kids to have, I'm out. You don't like the vacation where I do, I know a couple that broke up for this reason, we're out. It's just a piece of paper, okay? Two views. Then we get to Jesus, and here's the, I think, he doesn't change what Moses says, but he, what he does continually in the Sermon on the Mount is he interprets it and puts it into context because he's saying, you obviously didn't understand it, or I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt and say you didn't understand it, and that's why you've been not doing it. So when he comes, he only says two lines here. But later in the book of Matthew, in chapter 19, he is asked again about divorce. The Pharisees again approach him. And why do they want to ask him questions? Well, the text says it's because they're trying to test him. But listen, I know even I'm not Jesus by any stretch. But as a pastor, I know this. People will often ask me my opinion of issues for a few reasons. One, legitimately they want to know. What does the Bible say about whatever? Sometimes it's because they have an agenda and they're hoping they'll get the pastor on their side. Maybe he'll side with Hillel instead of Shammai, right? 
So are they doing that? Probably, because they're trying to test him. But also, remember, the king, Herod, has been divorced. So are they trying to get him to perjure himself and get him in trouble with the king? Now, regardless, here is what Matthew 19, 3-9 says. And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? It's a pretty straightforward question. He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. What's interesting about what Jesus does here is he has asked a very simple question. Can I divorce or not? Is it, it's okay. And his first comment is not about divorce, but about marriage. He doesn't say, well, let's talk about this and let's go through this, the rules and the guidelines. Instead, he first says divorce or a marriage he talks about. And here I learned this from him and from John Stott, who I think gets it from Jesus, I hope. When John Stott said, you know, anytime a couple would come and ask to talk about divorce, the first thing he would do is talk about marriage, not about the divorce. And that's very wise because, well, Christ does it, so it must be pretty wise. And the reason is he is trying to show something. You want to get divorced. Do you know what it is you're breaking here? Do you know what it is you're in? Do you actually understand marriage? Because your view of divorce will always be related to your view of marriage and vice versa. People, and this is gonna, I'm not trying to be too harsh, but let me be clear. If you hold marriage to be light, you will think divorce to be light. It's just, and, whole, and I'm not trying, I know if you've been divorced, you'd say, well, Carl, what do you know? You've never been divorced. Well, I'm not going to get divorced so I can have experience. Um, I'm going to simply trust what Scripture seems to be saying, but let's look at this. First, let's look at the creation example. I know we cut, touched on this a little in the marriage sermon, but let's recap about how, what marriage is. First, it's exclusive. Man and woman. Two people. Two separate genders together. That's what marriage is biblically. It's exclusive, and it is meant to be protected because of the weight God's going to put on that marriage. Because the marriage is meant to carry, as you're going to see, this this mandate to do something. In many ways, we, yes, singles is a viable way to live as a Christian. We've covered that. But in many ways, marriages are what God bases his entire mission in the world upon, married people. And because the weight of it is so hard, that marriage must be exclusive and strong. But it goes further. It has to be lifelong. This is not something you enter in and out of. It should not be. But he, of course, understands that's the way we do. Like you just said, our hardness of heart. And then God comes in to regulate this divorce. And actually, let me move him further. Let's go here. So if this is what marriage is, let's go to now our marriage ceremonies. I married a, a couple here, a family. I married a couple. We don't marry families. Um, here in the summer, and we, I did this during the ceremony, but uh, do you know why we do what we do in a marriage ceremony? I think I've covered this maybe with you before. Let's go through it quickly. When God creates Eve, he brings her. It says he brought her to the man. So when a father comes and brings his daughter to the husband, he stands in proxy for God and says, I am giving you my daughter. And, it's just, and that, listen, before you get the feminists up and roar and saying, she's not your possessions to give away, that's not what he's saying at all. 
It's not about possession. It's about care and love. God saying, I adore this girl. She is yours to now lead the way I would. Love her, care for her. So that's the proxy. He comes up. Then Adam sings out, right? Finally, this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. Notice something? Notice he's not speaking to Eve. He doesn't say, you will be called woman. He says, she will be called woman. Why? Because in the marriage ceremony, you, first, before I ask you to speak to each other, you speak to me. I say, Adam, will you take this woman to be your wife? And you say, I will. To me, I stand in proxy for God. Listen, I'm not saying I'm God, but I am the stand-in. And you are making vows to God. When people say they want to write their own vows, I don't like it. You know why? Vows are not, oh, I love you, you're so beautiful. You'll always be beautiful. Listen, that's maybe true. Maybe they'll never grow old. But, <laughs> but the point of a vow isn't an expression of love. It's an expression of fidelity. It's an expression of future love, that I will never leave you. This is what a vow is. And I make it to God first. Then I turn and say, Adam, do you take Eve? And you speak to the woman, or then vice versa. You speak to each other. But the vow happens this way first, then this way. This is biblical. Then after this is done, God then, well, if you look at the order we do it, the next thing he does, and I don't know where I am in my list here, he institutes the marriage. He says, now a, woman, a man will go and break his family apart, like he'll leave his parents, and he'll cleave to the wife. So he institutes marriage. Then he blesses it. Go and be fruitful. So the marriage is now blessed by God. Can you imagine? The God of the universe is blessing your marriage. Then he mandates it. It's not just there for you to have fun. Now go and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. So that married couple is then mandated to do something. So when somebody comes and says, we want to get a divorce, we don't agree on sex or how to raise kids. Listen, I understand, I do. But do you know what marriage is? It's a big deal. It's an important thing. And I know we've covered this in past sermons. And as a result, we need to challenge. As a church, we have to be a sort of church that emphasizes the weight and beauty of marriage. Not to the point of treating people as second-class citizens when they divorce, and we're going to get there. But we need to be very clear about what marriage is. And then Jesus offers this very bizarre statement at the end of the first passage we read in, in the Sermon on the Mount, that when a man divorces her uh, for any reason that's not adultery, he makes her commit adultery if she gets married again. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. That seems pretty harsh, right? Does that mean some couples who get divorced for unbiblical reasons and then remarry. Does that mean that marriage you're in, as happy as it is, is adultery? Listen, you don't need me to tell you it is. But we do need to try to figure out what does that mean. So, let me say a few things about this. First, the reason we wonder about this is because, like I said, we haven't understood the Bible, and for a long time we've been drinking at the cultural idea of marriage and divorce. Let me say one more thing about what we do here at Redeemer. Recently, we've made it very clear we do not, I do not marry non-Christians. I won't marry them. If they come and they want, I always tell them, here's what has to happen. You must be a member of this church in good standing that I know you. Or I need a letter from a pastor of a church that agrees with our statement of faith to show that you're actually Christians. I've turned down a number of couples, and it's not because I'm mean, but I often will say, well, why do you want to be married by me? Why don't you just go to a justice of the peace? And one couple, to their credit, said, well, listen, we're not sure if God's even real, but we want to cover our bases. We want to be married because if there is a God, then we want to do right by him. So I said, listen, 
I, I said, I, if, I, if I were to marry you, I would be affirming that that's the sort of God I have. The sort of God that exists and is a biblical God is not the kind of God who says, I don't care what you do, just get the certificate right. That's not the God we serve. And if you have no intention of honoring God in your life, listen, that's fine, that's your business. But I'm not going to bind you in a third party to God. Go to a justice of the peace. They'll marry you civilly, but the Christian God and Christian marriage is not for you. I see the effects of poor marriages and poor parenting and poor families all through our ministry and through the city. I'm not going to add to it. So it's very simple. And I know, does that sound harsh? Maybe. C.S. Lewis suggested that, that Christians should marry, wear a ring on the other finger to prove we've been married by God before God, not just the state. So when the state says, hey, you're divorced, this is what gets back to here. The state, some people say, well, listen, we're divorced. By whose account? The state? See, you're under the impression that the state is sovereign over your marriage. That's only if you're not a citizen of heaven. If you're a citizen of heaven as a Christian, your marriage is, is accountable to God, not the state. So the, the state can give you a divorce, but God says, I've allowed you to be divorced for a couple of reasons. If it's not for those reasons, you are yet married because the bond's not broken in my eyes. Does that sound harsh? It should, because that's what he says. And that is difficult. So the next step then, what comes then is us having to say, oh my goodness. So if I, am not if I have not been divorced before God, what do I do? Do I divorce my new wife or husband? No. This is the hard process of being humble before God and saying, Lord, for whatever reason, if it wasn't a biblical reason, we divorced, we were unable to make it work, we repent, we're sorry, we didn't know. We pray now you would forgive us in your son and bless this marriage, help us to do better. That's what happens. I don't condemn a couple who have been divorced. I don't. But I do expect, like I'm a Christian, it's my job, repent. And then let's get this marriage awesome and helping to model excellent marriages for, the, for our community that needs it so badly. And this is where, in Scripture, we now see Jesus being incredibly compassionate. He's not just being hard, because there are hard lines, and there needs to be, especially with issues like this. But he's so compassionate. And that example I gave you is the most incredible one I can find. Hosea, read Hosea. It's, it, it'll, it'll melt you. It'll destroy you when you see what God did. And when you begin as a Christian to realize that you were an adulterer, before God. You cheated on God. You continue to. And he waits and he restores you. Then when issues in your marriage come up, you begin to say, okay, there may need a, need, there may need a time for separation. If it's physical abuse, at very least, you've got to get away and the man has to be civilly brought up on charges. It's very simple because he has broken the law of God and of the state. But ideally, could it, could it be possible that the man could repent? Maybe. Could the woman forgive? Maybe, but how? only with God. Because the world will tell you, get away, get away, get away. And I'm not saying it's not always the right decision. But God is saying, are you sure you have to get away? Man, do better. Do better. And this is that difficult thing. How do we do it? And so as a pastor and as a church, we come alongside the hurting marriages and we say, listen, safety is there, of course, but let's do what we can to make sure we've done everything to keep it together if possible. Sometimes it's not going to work. Moses knew it. Jesus knew it. God knows it. You and I know it. But we do everything we can to keep that marriage together, if we can. If not, is it biblically done? And if it's breaking for a non-biblical reason, we're going to walk with you to say, how do you do this in a way that is as honoring of God as possible? How? 
It's very difficult. It's not easy. But the moment you realized that God would rather endure humiliation than break his relationship with you, that's what he does. When you sin against God, he sits and takes it. He's cuckled it, as Shakespeare would say. He sits and watches his bride sleep with another. And he allows it to happen. And then in that patience, he'd rather be humiliated than offer you a certificate of divorce. It's incredible. So for that, at very least, needs to be a motivation of saying, yes, I may have to suffer humiliation to keep my marriage together, but I'm honoring God in the process. Again, not suggesting you stay in. I've said it a lot, so I'm not going to keep saying And then, again, now really, this is literally a close. Jesus was treated as an adulterer so that you and I could be treated as a spotless bride. And for that reason, as a church, let's get better. Many people have been divorced. I mean, 40% of you at least. That's if we're statistically accurate. Let's not condemn people who have been divorced. Let's not do that. Christ doesn't. But at the same time, let's also do what we can to nurture. It's that fine line. Some people are going to think we're too hard at times because we're going to hold people to hard lines about marriage and divorce. But when they fail, we're going to also forgive. And we're going to say, we get it. We get it. How do we help? How do we support? How do we love? How do we get you right with God? And it's going to be such a hard walk. You're going to sometimes think Carl and the elders are just too liberal. How dare you? Other times you're going to think they're too hard. Yeah, the answer is probably true on both sides because we're trying to do what Christ did and we're not Christ. But that's what we're called to do. We're supposed to see the Father is suffering for our infidelity and be melted so that we can then turn our marriages and the way we deal with the broken marriages into opportunities of glory and glorifying God. Let's pray.